0: Hello and welcome to Interactive Investors new ETFs podcast. I'm Tom Bailey and I'm the ETF editor at Interactive Investor. This podcast series aims to provide easy to understand introductions to the exciting world of exchange traded funds. We'll answer questions like what are ETFs and explain how investors can use them in their portfolios. We'll also talk through the history of ETFs and look at, how, at the new generation of ETFs such as factor and thematic funds. In this episode, our guest is David Stevenson an experienced investment commentator and writer with a particular focus on ETFs. David has written for several leading financial publications, including the Financial Times and CityWire. He is also executive editor at the publication ETF Stream and co-author of the book, The Ultimate ETF Guidebook, and he blogs at adventurousinvestor.com. So thank you for joining, David. Thanks very much for inviting me on. So the first question is very simple. What are ETFs and how do they work? ETFs are
1: exchange-traded funds. It's a very complicated-sounding piece of jargon, and and, and like many things in investment, a terrible acronym. And all that simply means is uh, you invest in a fund, a bit like a unit trust, in fact, it can be a unit trust, or a bit like an investment trust, you you can buy it on the stock market, and it invests in whatever index it is tracking. It could be the S&P 500, which is a big American index, it could be the FTSE 100, And really it's got just a series of distinguishing features. The first is there is no active manager. So there's no manager saying I prefer Microsoft over Facebook or Facebook over Microsoft in the S&P 500. Effectively, the tracking of the 500 stocks in the S&P 500 is done mechanically. The reason you might do that, which is the second distinguishing feature is it's cheaper. You don't have to pay for that active fund manager and their extremely expensive Porsche. And thirdly also, you do away with something that we in the business call idiosyncratic risk, which is a, a, a kind of a, a overblown jargony way of saying crap fund managers. Because my decision to maybe invest more in Facebook versus uh, Microsoft or vice versa could be just plain wrong. And uh, maybe I should put all my money in the opposite one. I just, you know, I'm not, I might not be a very good active fund manager. With an index tracking exchange traded fund, I do away with all of that. It's mechanically just doing it for me. And then the very last thing, so it says exchange traded. All that means is a bit like investment trusts. You buy it through a broker off the exchange, in this case, the London Stock Exchange. I was wondering if you'd
0: come back to some of the main arguments for using ETFs. So you mentioned them just now, but the, the main two seem to be cost and kind of inability of fund managers to consistently outperform the market through their own stock picking. Well, the cost bit is relatively straightforward. You know.
1: Uh, I mean, it's changed over the last few years, but in the olden days, you know, even relatively clean versions of funds, unit trust funds, traditional funds, would tend to cost over 1% per annum. It's come down a bit now. There's the cleaner versions usually are about between 0.6 and 1%. Most ETFs trade have a TER, a total expense ratio. You also see another piece of acronym uh, jargon called OCF, overall cost um, of, of funds, uh, of well below 0.5%. Many of them have. TERs of actually below 20 basis points, which is below 0.2%. Some of them are in the single-digit basis points, seven, eight basis points. So that's a big saving over an actively managed fund that charges you sometimes close to 1%. And the reason they could do that, as I said, you just you're not you're not employing the Porsche-driving fund manager, and effectively it's just a much simpler structure for them to administer. The point about idiosyncratic risk, you quite rightly pointed out there, is. What academics have told us for many years is, when they studied fund returns, is that, let's say you have a, a top performing, uh, top quartile active fund manager in, I don't know, in 2018, there is almost a random distribution about whether or not there'll be a top performing fund manager in the top quartile in 2019 and then so on and so on to 2020, 2021. In a sense, it's a random distribution that there are very few fund managers, active fund managers who have persistent outperformance. And this is a pretty rigorously done piece of analysis. Loads of people have done it, academics have done it, uh, S&P, Dow Jones, big index company's done it. You know, it's robust. And a classic way of understanding it is actually to, and probably unfairly pick on it, but Neil Woodford. Um, Neil Woodford was a very, very successful fund manager who was, you know, quite often top quartile for a couple of years. And then he was catastrophically not top quartile for a couple of years. But not not just to pick on Neil Woodford. It's pretty much true of virtually every fund manager out there. They have good years and they have bad years. And when they have bad years, quite often they have very bad years. And they basically make in returns much less than if you just invested in the index. So the idea is really very, very simple. Why bother taking the risk, all that idiosyncratic risk? Just invest in the index. And in case you think it's a bonkers idea, Warren Buffett, you know, the sage of Omaha, he once famously said that, you know, when he drops dead, he's he's talking to his wife about where she should put her money. He just says, go and stick it an S&P 500 index tracker. Don't bother investing it in people like me because ultimately we're hard to find. And quite often by the time you've found them, you've probably missed the outperformance.
0: So those arguments often apply to the kind of uh, standard NILA, ETFs, which track the big indices you mentioned, like the S&P and the FTSE. Um, but over the years, ETFs have been used to track other non-actual asset classes, such as uh, bonds and commodities and property. I was wondering if you give an overview of how this works and what the major risks associated here are.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's important to do a little bit of history here. The idea for index tracking funds originally came from Paul Samuelson, a very famous economist who's actually, who actually wrote the textbook on economics. And then uh, a guy called Jack Bogle, John Bogle, who's a founder of a business called Vanguard, because Samuelson said, great idea, whether we have index trackers, uh, and he he said, it will never work because I don't see anybody could do it. Well, uh, Jack Bogle did it with Vanguard and for the first couple of years, I think it was something called the first America trust or something. It just didn't take off. And then basically, over time, people, your penny drops, people began to realize, well, that's quite a good idea. And, and he had what is a really just a mutual fund or a unit trust. And Jack Bogle then sort of, he properly he popularized the idea. And then the, the next big outfit that comes along is an outfit called iShares, which is originally owned by Barclays Bank. Who then flogged it many, many years ago to a company called BlackRock, you know, controller, and they really popularised the exchange-traded fund. So you've always had two kinds of index-tracking fund: an ETF, which is an exchange-traded fund, and then you've had an index-tracking mutual fund, which is what really what Vanguard did. And and the original iteration of this is really was the unit trust, not the exchange-traded fund. Fund, and they were really bog standard: it's S&P 500, f 100, you know, MSCI World, which is a big world index. If you ever talk to Jack Boga, like I've done, he actually thought that, that really most investors stick to the basics, yeah? Stick to the simple ones. But of course, that you don't make much money out of that. So what uh, ended up happening was the exchange traded fund companies came along and offered, as you said, uh, property ETFs, uh, commodity ETFs. And they morphed for, to a different purpose. And really what's going on there is that some of the same ideas are going on. You're still tracking a mainstream index, yeah? Or, or a spot price. So one of the most successful kind of alternative etps actually it's called an exchange trader product is, is gold for instance it's actually quite effective to buy a gold physical tracker etp exchange traded product it's not a fund because you can't under the rules have a fund because it's not diversified it just buys bars of gold and sticks them in a the vault and actually it's actually quite a good idea if you want to track the price of gold because cheap sufficient you get what you what it says on the biscuit tin. the problem is though that For all the, for every one or two really good, simple, basic to understand alternative idea like gold ETPs. and actually um, bond ETFs are not a bad idea either. Because in fact, why why go out of your way to buy individual UK government gilts? Yeah, you can do that. It's not complicated. Why don't you just buy an ETF? that has a diverse range of government securities or guilds in them. So actually bonds, it, it's a lot of sense in bonds, actually. But no, it went beyond that. And there are all sorts of weird stuff out there. The big new thing out there is what we call thematics. So what they're trying to do is it's an ETF, on equities, and they're trying to capture a theme, so robotics or the cloud or anything like that. The idea here is a bit different, really, rather than just track the market in the broadest possible sense which is true for all the examples I've given – bonds, equities, even gold – what you're actually trying to do in reality is capture a bit of outperformance. You're trying to find some investment idea that would do better than just sticking the money in a bog standard FTSE 100 or or an S&P 500 tracker. So you're looking for a trend or a theme which which will outperform. And those thematic ETFs are becoming extremely successful. And, and, in, and in fact, a, a, another take on that is the rise of ESG, yet another acronym, um, ETFs. And they set to be the same idea. They're catching a theme, which is, I only want to invest in companies that fit my uh, socially responsible investing or ethical investing standard. It's the same idea. Now, these kind of ETFs designed to effectively outperform the boring bog standard benchmark, as I said, have become very popular. But the problem you do have, is that they're usually quite concentrated. So instead of having, say, 500 stocks that you get in the S&P 500 or 100 in the FTSE 100, you might only end up with, say, 30 or 40 stocks. And frequently, it's say, about just robotics or just AI or just the cloud. And quite frequently, they'll also do a little trick, which is actually quite a clever trick, called equal weighting. And what they'll do is they'll have 30 or 40 stocks to do with the cloud or e-commerce, and each of them would have an equal weight in that ETF. You might think, well, what does that matter? Well, because if you buy this, an S&P 500 tracker, they weight all the stocks in that basket based on their market cap. So Apple and companies like Apple, which are huge companies, have a bigger weight than small into companies that are only worth a few billion. With an equal weight, the small companies are as important as the big companies. And the reason why that's important is that small companies tend to be a lot more volatile. They go, their share price is a lot more volatile. They go up and down a lot more. So these more concentrated, more focused ETFs can sometimes be much more volatile in terms of their price. movements.
0: I think it's interesting what you say about the risks here with thematic Funds being more concentrated because one of the arguments for something like an S&P 500 tracker is that you have a, a very diversified portfolio and you, you own the whole representative Market cap weighted sample of of U U S stocks with these yeah. kind of thematic funds. You're trying to pick which yeah. industries and sectors are likely to outperform in the future, which comes back to the whole ability to anticipate the future, which is where active funds seem to fall down. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that that is that again. You're just going back to what we call idiosyncratic risk. You know, which basically means you, instead of you blaming the fund manager, you can only blame yourself when you pick the wrong theme. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's that, nothing necessarily wrong with that, because actually some thematics can do terrifically well. So a, a thematic that I've been championing for a long time is things like e-gaming. Actually, there is a discernible trend to spend more money on gaming. Yeah, ain't um, yep. going away, yeah. And the companies that are related to the gaming sector, you know, everything from chip makers like NVIDIA and AMD through to the actual games software developers themselves. They've done really well, and they've done really, really well in the last six to nine months. And actually, if you'd have invested in a thematic e-gaming, for instance, ETF, you'd have done remarkably well. Now at this point, I can remember somebody like like Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, who's now sadly deceased. He would be absolutely horrified to your point that you're doing that. He just basically felt that ETFs were deliberately encouraging people to game the market, to effectively treat it as some kind of speculative exercise. And really, what you should do is just buy an S&P 500 and do what Warren Buffett says his wife should do, which is buy it, sit on it and forget about it, yeah? You are gaming the market. And look, the evidence is, by and large, you probably won't succeed if you do it lots and lots of times. But some thematics can definitely produce outperformance, but you just have to be smart enough to realise, you know, when that game finishes.
0: Another way, uh, ETF investors, uh, and ETF product providers have offered ways to produce outperformance has been the rise of smart beta factor investing, so the ETFs that have, uh, have a tilt towards value stocks or growth yep. stocks, momentum, and such. I wonder if you could explain some of the main kind of reasoning behind this and what the again the, the potential benefits and risks are.
1: Yeah, again, it's all based out of really solid academic research. There's loads of data about this, and and really what the data said over the last. 50 to 60 years really is that certain types of stocks within the broad universe, like the SP 500 and 1400, tend to outperform over rare, fairly lengthy periods of time. What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is the two most sim- the simplest ones to explain are value and growth. Cheap stocks, good balance sheet, crap share price, value stocks have in the past tended to do terrifically well over the long term. Investors get basically a bit bored or they get cynical about a sector or a business they sell the shares, shares become cheap. You buy them when they're a bit cheap. uh, And you sit tight while they become less cheap. Growth is the kind of inverse of that. And growth is simply companies where they're growing their earnings bottom line quite stupendously. Uh, They're effectively growing their business much faster than the average, you will probably end up overpaying for them. But because investors get terribly excited about say, prospects for, say, tech stocks, they, the momentum becomes very strong and everybody piles into that. So that value versus growth has got lots of academic literature behind it. It works. And, and all you do is you build an ETF, sorry, actually you build an index first. And the index basically says, well, we're only really going to focus on stocks that are cheap, uh, and we're going to tilt it towards them and vice versa growth. There are other ones kicking around as well. You see another version called quality stocks, which are kind of cheapish, but still growing okay. Um, you see what we call l- low or minimum volatility, uh, stocks that are a bit quality, but their shares don't go up and down as much. And these factors, all these tilts, they're pretty, you know, they're established academically. And they've given rise to this whole movement called smart beta. And there's lots of them out there. The problem is, by and large, they've not worked. And this this is effectively a, a kind of derivation of the Heisenberg principle, which is this weird quantum idea that if you observe something, its state might actually change from the mere act of observation. What that actually means is that as soon as we've all spotted this quirk, this factor, we all pile into it. And then that little kind of inefficiency that markets sometimes have just basically gets the technical terms arbitraged away. Effectively, there are too many people doing it and everybody does it. And therefore, the little trick that you had doesn't work any longer. And there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that a lot of the factors don't sort of work if once we start building them into industrial grade ETFs. That said, by and large, we should expect in kind of kind of exciting markets that we've got at the moment where kind of growth stocks do well, that they'll probably carry on doing well for quite some time, they tend to, you know, the bubble, bubble begets even a bigger bubble. But eventually, the cheap stuff does pretty well because eventually we, the technical term used by kind of academic economists, is markets mean revert. They go back to the long-term average, and stuff that's really cheap by and large over the long term tends to do fairly well. It reverts back to the mean. So, I, in truth, I think the jury is out on factor investing. One factor that, well, actually there's a debate whether or not people is call it a factor, is this ESG, Environmental Social and Governance. Some people call that a factor, others
0: think it's not. ESG is definitely hugely in at the moment. I want to talk about some of the criticisms that ETFs come under now. It's quite common to see uh, articles in newspapers and magazines talking about how uh, the rise of ETFs and passive investing more generally may end up damaging how markets function and cause bubbles. So just... Criticism kind of takes different forms and is expressed in different ways, but one of the basic ideas is that ETF buyers are, are agnostic about price, and so you know, stocks get bid up regardless of any reference to their fundamentals, and any and it kind of damages price discovery and cause bubbles in stock markets and all other scary things. So I was wondering what you kind of think of these broad, broad criticisms and, and concerns. The whole series of criticisms lobbed at
1: ETFs. Um, if we go through them, I mean, there was an American investment bank called Sanford Bernstein. That I think rather hilariously once called ETFs kind of a Marxist weapon because effectively it's the masses taking over investment and the specialists who you know about investments are being downgraded. Another version of it, as you say, is that they encourage bubble momentum-seeking behaviour. And um, there's, I mean, we can see evidence for this at the moment. There's a lot of money being being pumped into tech uh, ETFs, and that's usually going a lot of it. A lot of that money is going into a handful of very highly rated. Exchange-traded funds that are in the tech sector investing in the fangs. Other versions are that you, you know, we end up with 100% passives. Who the hell is going to actually set the 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 price of of what a company is worth? So there there are variations on the same theme. And, and what I'd say is, look, there is some validity to the criticisms. It's definitely true that in a in a kind of frothy market, ETFs can produce more froth, so to speak. Pretty solid evidence, as I said, that a lot of money that's flooding into growth. Orientated ETS is flooding into tech stocks and to the FANG. The problem with that argument, though, is, is do you shoot the messenger or do you look at the message? And the reason why people are using these ETS, they're just a product structure, is because of other much more deeply held structural flaws. And those flaws are uh, lots of retail investors get terribly excited about past performance and thinking that what's true in the past is going to happen in the future, and they, they get they get taken in by these big narrative myths about tech will inevitably do incredibly well forever and ever and ever that exposes a behavioural bias, basically. And that behavioural bias can exist in ETFs, it can exist in active fund managers, there's plenty of active fund managers who've been doing exactly the same kind of exercise. So I sometimes think a lot of this is actually, they just happen to be the nearest available thing to criticise. No one who thinks that ETFs are a really good idea thinks you should only ever use ETFs and never use active funds. Active funds work pretty well, actually, in very specialist markets, where, uh, as you say, used uh, price discovery it doesn't really work. A-, a-, a lot of people like me are not particularly convinced that ETFs work terrifically well alternative asset classes, emerging markets, that kind of stuff. Active fund managers probably do a better exercise because those markets are not very liquid, not very deep, not very efficient, and therefore ETFs tend to not do terribly well in them. So most people will basically do both, you know, they'll be active and passive, and they'll just work out which markets work well. The last thing I'd say is this idea that they're Marxist invention of you know, the crowd's taking everything, democratising, and the active fund managers will die is laughable. I can imagine the future in which, say, 70% of funds are passive and 30% are active. And and actually, arguably, if you talk to active fund managers, the really good ones are really looking forward to a world in which ETFs are much more dominant because actually they'll be able to find more inefficiencies uh, in the markets and be able to exploit them and do well as active fund managers. The real change has happened. is not that really good active fund managers aren't doing terrifically well. What's actually happened is, is that ETFs have got rid of all of the slightly crap, what we call closet index trackers, yeah. And these slightly crap closet index trackers were active fund managers charging an active fee. But in reality, what they were doing looked a damn sight more like an ETF. Those people have basically had a very tough time over the last few years, because their kind of whole USP has vanished. So the real active fund managers are never going to go away. But they're kind of closet index
0: tracking active fund managers, you know, their timers, time has come. Moving on to some of the more technical questions for any listeners who are convinced to start investing with ETFs. What are the more popular ways to incorporate ETFs into a portfolio? Obviously, you mentioned, you know, not many people would use pure ETFs, kind of what the kind of maybe you talk about the satellite core approach and other, other ways you might integrate an ETF into your portfolio.
1: You can attract something like I I mentioned it earlier. uh, You know, UK government securities or just government securities generally. I I actually think an ETS is a damn good idea. You know, there are active fund managers who do it. There's not a lot of evidence actually they're much better than than just buying the index because they're very deep liquid markets. Um, Again, probably to a lesser degree, but probably still powerfully with the S&P 500. Something like uh, the S&P 500. Yeah, you know, there are a few active fund managers who do a better job than the index. Not many of them, in particularly U.S. equities. It's very liquid, very broad, very efficient market. You know, I think probably you should sit with a default position saying, in things like that, I'll invest in an ETF. And then if an active firm manager comes along with a better proposition and says, actually, you can you can do better with this, with this active strategy, then have a look at it. Then, as I said, there are other things. So, you know, so this cause could be U.S. equities, uh, the world world equities, which could be kind of, passive funds, or could actually be kind of smart beta funds. If you're a more cautious investor, you might have a value tilt and be happy to have more value oriented ETFs. But then, as I mentioned earlier, as soon as you get to more specialist stuff, you might choose at that point to go for active fund managers, particularly investment trusts. I'm a big fan of investment trusts, and I use investment trusts and ETFs, I'm very happy to move back and forth between them. So at that point, you might basically use an investment trust to invest in, say, emerging markets, or in commodities. Or, or anything like that. So that core satellites approach, the riskier stuff, where their markets are smaller, more alternative active fund managers. That's certainly true for small caps. There are very, very, very few small cap ETFs. That I mean no, I can count them on one hand. Uh, they don't really exist, and that's because they can't really track those indices. So actually, the active fund manager, you sort of gotta, you gotta use um you, You've got to use an, uh, an active fund
0: manager at that point. So, say an investor decided they want to invest in uh, the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500, and now they're looking at uh, which ETF to to do so. What actually should we be looking for to distinguish between, say, an iShares ETF or Vanguard ETF? Or yeah,
1: it's, it's a very good question. To which, annoyingly, the answer is not that simple, really. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> they 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 would love you to have this idea that basically what you should do is you should only invest in the biggest, cheapest. Yeah which inevitably usually means Vanguard or, or iShares. It, it isn't quite that way. Look, it does make sense to invest in something that's big, liquid, has got a tight bid-offer spread. That's the difference between the buying and the selling price. And has got a low fee structure. Yeah, it does make sense. But there are some other rinky-dinky features that really do make it, make a difference. For instance, you might, if you're doing investing in a foreign index, want a currency hedging Because currency can move around quite a bit and it can both add to performance and detract from performance. You might also be thoughtful about what the index is. So rather than say, track the FTSE 100, you might choose to track, say, the FTSE all-share indexes, which includes 100 to 250 and, and the small-cap index. The same in America. Rather than investing in the S&P 500, you may choose to invest in a slightly broader index like the MSCI USA index, for instance. And also, uh, and I'm all, I dread to sort of bring this subject up because it's really a slightly futile debate, but whether or not you want to have a physical or synthetic ETF. I promise, really try not to introduce too much jargon, but... <laughs> um, but there, there is this debate that was going around and slightly died down recently. That There are two types of ETF. One type is where you track an index and you actually buy the stocks in that index, which is called physical. And there's a the second type called synthetic, where effectively an investment bank comes along and say, we'll write you effectively uh, a note that says we'll pay the, the, the change in the index. Uh, and uh, that note will be effectively a debt security on the investment bank. And you you thus open yourself up to what's called counterparty risk. The investment bank goes bust. Now. With synthetics, lots of people put their harms ha- up in the air and go, oh, it's terrible, it was cancer modulus. They can make a lot of sense for some indices because actually they will give you the exact return that an index give you. They won't be something called tracking error. Uh, and tracking error it does matter. Yeah, so let's just say I've got an index and it goes up 10% and my ETF only gives me 9%. The tracking error is 1%. Why might that happen? It might happen because actually the ETF finds it quite difficult to buy some of say some of the smaller stocks in an index. And because of all the all these inefficiencies sort of build up and, and mount up and effectively you could see quite a big tracking error. So you want to make sure the tracking error is quite low and synthetic ETFs because they're effectively a note from the investment bank say we'll pay that index return. They can be very efficient. And they can actually, because they'll give you what they say they will, yeah? Uh, and they can be very good for things like emerging markets, yeah? Or smaller markets where actually it's difficult to buy the underlying stocks or bonds, yeah? So um, tracking error is quite important. And tracking error sometimes, not always, and in fact, not most of the time, leads you to probably go towards some synthetics. And, and so therefore, that, that, those are the things I just say. Make sure the bid offer spread is tight. Make sure that the TRTR TR is low. Make sure it's a reasonably big in terms of amount of money in it. So that's probably certainly minimum 100, probably 500 million, probably a billion. Make sure the tracking error is low and make sure other features in it make uh, sort of work for you. Is it a distributing ETF? Does it distribute its income? Is it total return? Does it basically roll up any
0: income in the total return? There are lots of kind of insy
1: wincy things that do make a
0: difference. So last question. We spoke about Smart Beta Informatic ETFs already. I was wondering what other trends do you see in ETFs in the future?
1: One of the things that's become quite popular in America, uh, and it is quite popular in Europe as well, actually, is we're seeing a lot of short leveraged ETFs, or BTPs, actually. Um, What does that mean, short leveraged? Basically, what it does is it pays you one, say, two, three, four times the daily return of an index. And that's great for the speculators out there, the day traders uh, who might have, say, done spread betting. They can use a very highly leveraged upside and downside um, fund to track a stock or an index. They prove quite popular and you've even seen versions of that launched on individual stocks like Tesla and everything. And they can, for the very active speculative trend, they can make a lot of sense. ESG, I've already mentioned. I mean, ESG is massive and big and lots of institutions are getting into it. There's an element of suspicion and cynicism that creeps into my voice at ESG. Uh, because I think that some some of the ESG providers have been making quite outlandish claims about the fact that their environmentally friendly, socially friendly, governance friendly indices can outperform the underlying mark, benchmark so they can do better than the S&P 500. Uh, I think that that is a questionable claim over the long term. And frankly, if you're going to invest in a, a socially and ethically responsible ETF, you should be willing to accept you may not get the return from, say, investing in the S&P 500. You may get a bit, little bit less because by and large, you're missing out certain stocks that tend to do quite well in the long term. So classic examples, tobacco stocks, everybody hates them for the obvious reason, but they actually did quite well. So ESG has done terrifically well, and I think will carry on doing very well. And I think we'll see many, many more of these thematic ETFs emerge. There will be all sorts of new thematic ETFs. And I think actually in the right, in the right hands with the right investor, who knows what they're doing they can be a brilliant tool because they allow you to be much more granular and specific about what you want to do. But they're not for the general investor. They're not for somebody who frankly doesn't bother looking at the markets every week and doesn't work for them. But it does work for the kind of more adventurous
0: investor. So yeah, I think you'll see a lot more thematic ETFs out there. So that concludes the first episode of our ETFs podcast. Thanks for your time, David, and thank you for listening. In our next episode, we'll be taking a closer look at the history of ETFs.